Hello and welcome to Tech Crack, the podcast series brought to you by Sync NI. We are Northern Ireland's leading technology and business media company, and this podcast series will see us interview some of the best, brightest, and most influential thought leaders from across NI's business and tech sectors. Find out more on SyncNI.com or follow us across our social media channels. And enjoy. This week, I spoke with Dr. Connor Bamford. He is a research fellow in virology and antiviral immunity at Queen's University, Belfast. We talked about Northern Ireland's current COVID-19 situation and the UK's recent decision to impose a travel corridor on those coming here from South America and Portugal. We also discussed the COVID-19 vaccine and news of its latest distribution, conspiracy theories, antibodies, fake news, and hopefully we address all other queries you might have about coronavirus. Well, the, first of all, um, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. I've been wanting to get you know yourself on for quite a while because who else better to tell us about COVID-19 and the virus than a virologist? Um, so basically, this week is obviously quite a big week within the UK. There's a lot of positive news. Um, you know, you're rolling out the vaccine to over 70s and clinically vulnerable people in England. Um, but also, you know, there's new strains uh, new variants of of the virus that have uh, broken out in Portugal and South America. So now there's a travel corridor has been implemented here. Could you just explain, Connor? You know what exactly is a new strain or a new variant of the virus? What does that actually mean for the public? Um, yeah, I can try and do that. So you know, there's not just one kind of um, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, since it emerged into the human population, sort of late 20 in late 2019 and probably November, um, it's kind of in each time it infects a person and, and transmits to another person, um, it will mutate. And this is just a natural way. Um, this is a natural thing that viruses do. And most of the time, it, it doesn't change how the virus works or behaves. And actually we use this to sort of reconstruct um, how the virus moves from person to person, from country to country across time. So it's very useful. Um, and normally it's a very boring process. Um, however, occasionally these mutations do change the virus and maybe make the virus more stable and grow better, infect people better, maybe escape a drug or, or a vaccine. And then when these mutations crop up, they're quite advantageous to the virus and then they'll spread better. So um, over time, there'll be, there'll be more of that new variant. So we've lots of mutations are happening. There's lots of infections going on. And then we recognize those mutations as so-called variants or new strains and somewhat, and then they become worrying. There's lots of, there's lots of variants out there, but not many of them are worrying except um, these three um, that we have heard more about um, recently. So this is the the so-called UK or South African or South American uh, strains or variants. And um, we're worried about them because they might alter how the virus behaves. And do you think in terms of, could that make symptoms worse in a way? You know, if someone catches this new strain, you know, is it, is it that sort of variable or do you think it will affect the individual in the same way, but maybe it'll just be easier to catch or not as easy to treat with drugs and vaccines? So that's a really important point. And we're always looking at anything that changes COVID-19 and so we're actively looking at mutations that change make the disease more severe or for it to spread better or it to evade vaccines so far with this 
these, for example, the most information is known about the UK variant. Um, and this was actually caught because it seemed to spread better. Um, and then when we looked into it or, or scientists looked into it, they don't seem that it actually makes you sicker. It just makes, um, I guess, infects more people. And so in that way, you'll get more infections, you'll get more people getting sick, going into hospital and then dying. So on a personal level, uh, it's, it's not a big difference, but on a community-wide basis, um, it can be a real big difference. And even a slight marginal increase in transmissibility um, is just going to make you know, our lives harder when we are thinking about ways to restrict uh, you know, the spread of these viruses. Yeah, I know there's probably, it's, you know, the vaccine being rolled out is in its infancy at the minute, so there's probably not a lot of data around it, but in terms of the efficacy of, of the vaccines, you know, has there been any research or any statistics to show that the vaccines are less, um, you know, efficient on people because of these strains? So we have the, the immediate problem we have at the minute is that we want to stop these new variants spreading, they might spread faster. So now we have a hard time spreading it. And also we want to stop new variants um, arising. So we have to control that through public health measures. And that's you know, what we've seen from social distancing, et cetera. But the alternative, the, the other worry is that our vaccines, which are, are seen to be the sort of silver bullet to COVID-19, they might not work as well. Um, we don't have, I don't believe we have any data from vaccinated people, because that's, as you said, you know, there's not many people who are getting vaccinated. So you've got a limited amount of people to compare. Although, you know, people are, they are, they are looking at that and we will understand that in the future. But we do have some experimental um, evidence. So in the lab, when we take these viruses or we take the particular mutations they have, and we do think that it does alter um, how the immune system sees the virus and how our antibodies bind to it. And we think that actually it does make them more resistant to um, the vaccine, but it does appear only to be quite slight um, and not a, a big major difference and not one that is likely to impact um, the vaccine in a person. It's more sort of in a test tube where we're able to see these effects and control the experiment quite well. We can see a subtle effect, but when you translate that into a, a body, we don't think it's going to make a big um, deal and even if it did we could in theory um, change and uh, the vaccine and uh, modify the vaccine like we do with the annual flu vaccine and so that's sort of every couple of years we're one step ahead of the virus and you've got a new a new vaccine yeah and obviously as well then you know we were just chatting about um it's quite a, a good week i suppose in that um well in england as I said, the over 70s and clinically vulnerable people are getting vaccinated more this week. Uh, they're hoping that around 88% of people who are more likely to die from the virus will, will be vaccinated by mid-February. And Northern Ireland, I think I read, is the, the quickest vaccinated region within the UK. I think 6% of people here have been vaccinated so far. From your sort of personal professional view as a virologist, Connor, you know, what would be the ideal situation? You know, how quickly do you think people should should be being vaccinated? You know, what is like the, the perfect outcome? You know, well, realistically, you know, the most positive outcome in terms of how many people will be vaccinated, how quickly? Yeah, so these vaccines are certainly one of the big answers we have to COVID-19 and they will be immensely helpful in the next year and going forward. Um, 
you know, obviously we want to do as, as quick as possible and uh, because we know these vaccines are very safe and and they're highly effective uh, and what what we've seen so far is actually in for example northern ireland they're doing an incredible job at doing this and especially in the prioritization of people um who are most vulnerable or who are most at risk of dying and i think you know, that that's a, a, a unprecedented amount of work um, you know, and, and it can always be done better. You can always vaccinate more people um, using things like 20, more doses and 24-7 you know, vaccination. I think if, if you wanted to do that, you could do that. But I think in Northern Ireland, we're doing a, a really, really good job. And importantly, that's um, always that's on target for this, thinking that by the end of the summer, everybody who can have the vaccine, um, that's over 18, um, they will be offered that vaccine. So it's the idea that we're thinking more about next winter um, than you know the next couple of weeks. And yes, the vaccine will work and we'll see benefits happening very quickly, but it's more, yeah, thinking more longer term, um, I, I think. How, how did your role sort of change whenever COVID-19 broke out sort of not just here but globally because it sort of happened all at once worldwide you know obviously you know everyone says we're living in unprecedented times and there's never really been a, a virus like this but you know in your own point of view you know is COVID-19 similar to anything you've ever worked on or studied before even the way that it um even its transmission rates or its symptoms so my my experience is in a I just say maybe about 15 years of virology um, but you, the re this is a pandemic and a fairly major pandemic. And in terms of viral pandemics, there actually hasn't been that many. And really the only ones we've seen um, are influenza pandemics. And, and that's really the, they're the textbook example of how a pandemic um, originates, unfolds, and thankfully goes away. Um, however, what was different about this one is that it wasn't an influenza virus. And it was a it was a coronavirus, and, and they have got very different properties. So um, it's been very interesting because it's rewriting the textbooks, and it will help us um, learn for you the next pandemic. Because basically, all of our advice was around influenza and influenza pandemics, mm -hmm. and this will have forced us to think differently. And um, you know, it, you know, for example, what's the next pandemic going to be? It, it's probably going to be a an influenza virus, but it could be a coronavirus or it could be something else. So we're going to have to, our preparedness for pandemics is going to have to change in that we're going to have to think, what if it's a coronavirus? What if it's an influenza virus? But we're also going to have to think, what if it's something um, completely different? There's lots of other viruses that could cause pandemics um, out there that we're now going to have to really seriously consider in, in how we plan. So it's been yeah, very interesting because it's very different from what um, we were taught and what we knew. Yeah, even then, just, you know, touching on that point you made, Connor, about this is sort of going to rewrite the textbooks and whenever we do have future pandemics, you know, hopefully they're, they're few and far between. But it's, it's just interesting because I know um, the head of the British Medical Association in Northern Ireland, Dr. Tom Black, um, you know, he was chatting this week about we haven't seen the worst you know, he doesn't think in terms of the, the hospital peaks in Northern Ireland and, and it's apparently intensive care is expected to get a lot worse this weekend. Um, and he warned that when it came to reviewing how the pandemic was handled, that this phase will stand out as one where we could have planned it better. 
do you think again this is just totally your own um you know, personal and professional perspective how do you think maybe just here within this region northern ireland the pandemic maybe could have been handled you know if you want to talk us through when it initially broke out in march last year you know it's been quite quite a journey since then but in terms of flattening the curve and and stats you know coming out of lockdown going back into lockdown you know do you think we should have done anything differently yeah so even though i i said about it it's completely new i mean there were still um, broad things that were recommended from the start and um, by public health experts and really uh, pushed by the WHO uh, who, who were watching things unfold um, very early in 2020 in, in China and Asia. And that if these things were followed, uh, that would have been, that would have protected the, uh, the country and um, the region. Uh, and these are quite basic things, albeit you know, this is a new virus and it's a particularly hard virus because it um, can kind of be spread and without you really knowing that you have symptoms. So that makes it just very, very difficult to um, control, but it, it's still controllable. So it doesn't actually spread as fast as influenza. It spreads a bit slower. And then that, that, that's why we, um, we have this opportunity to actually slow the spread um, of it down. And so that, you know, there's things that the, the WHO were saying for us to do um, you know, surrounding borders, um, you know, testing um, and things we learned very early on about the susceptibility of, of the elderly and in care homes that, you know, if you were looking back with, with hindsight and being overly critical that you could critique responses that the UK made that were, that were bad, that weren't as best as they could be done. Um, and I guess in some ways you are kind of forgiven a bit for that and um, you can't be making those same mistakes for sort of six months later so you know things that we learned in that first wave you know those same lessons should have been applied to prevent second waves and so what we saw in in summer where the virus went was very low you know should we have really seen this if we were better prepared should we have seen the the second wave and um, I think it would have been less, and I think there were definitely lessons to be learned. Um, but then even thinking now, there has to be lessons learned to stop um, any further waves. And I hope we have learned those lessons over the cumulative sort of year and a half experience. Yeah. And then also in terms of, you know, that sort of cl closing the borders and, and advice around that. And, you know, the UK government has now, um, you know, people coming in from, from South American countries and Portugal have to isolate for 10 days or, you know, show a, a negative COVID-19 test. Do you think that is the, the best possible way forward? And do you think, because I know a lot of countries, um, I think like the Netherlands, for example, have been implementing those sort of rules for quite a while now. Do you think that's best practice for airports here going forward? Yeah, this, this kind of only helps if you've got sort of you don't have a lot of the thing you're worried about within your border, but you are, you know, there's a lot of it outside of it. So whereas back at the, the beginning of the year um, and during summer, you know, we didn't have that much COVID here and there was, there was likely more of it outside of our borders and that that's where that would have helped. And that would have helped keep um, the virus out. And, and now we're seeing that because there's lots of variants that we don't have in the UK 
and apart apart from the the UK variant, you know, we have a lot of stuff um, in the UK that we don't want, or we have lots of outside the UK that we don't particularly want in. And this is why um, you know, border checks and controls can help slow that spread down. And um, so, yeah, it's one of the things that we can bring in um, to help. Um, yeah, and along with things we have within our borders, such as you know, good testing and tracing and isolating. The other thing as well, um, you know, Belfast International Airport has, has brought in rapid um, testing and there's, I think there's Queens are doing trials, um, you know, for antibody testing. In terms of, of antibodies, so if you have the virus and then, you know, you have it for, you know, a week or however long, and then you build up natural antibodies within your, your system so that you don't get it again for, I think it's what I'm assuming at the minute the average is like three months, but some people might naturally have those antibodies. So is that right that some people might naturally have antibodies that means that they can't get the virus or that they're less likely to get it? We, 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 we thought that in the, uh, at the start, but we don't think that that is really a, an, a, an appreciable protection now. And that's, it was reason because there's other coronaviruses that are kind of related um, and they do infect people and maybe that gives them some immunity against SARS-CoV-2, but we don't think that now is to be a big, um, a big factor at play. And the best thing we have, look, we have two things of evidence now that if you have had SARS-CoV-2 infection um, and it was a, sort of a, a, a bad infection, you, you will have antibodies. And if you survive that, um, you will have antibodies and you will be protected against reinfection or at least getting another bite of COVID. In, in general, most people will be protected. Uh, of course, we do have cases where you have been reinfected and you've got severe disease the second time. So it's not a complete block. And of course, now we've got people who have been vaccinated and those vaccines work best against serious disease. They, they work less well against blocking transmission. So we know that you can be, in, even if you've been vaccinated with say two doses, you will still be able to be infected again and you'll probably be able to spread that um, virus on to the next person. So that's why we have to, um, you know, the best possible way to, to stop COVID is to vaccinate as many people as possible because people can still transmit it with the vaccine. Yeah, and then that sort of brings me to this question. Um, I'm sure you, <laughs> I'm sure you like many sort of medical professionals have been angered because I know I, I get quite uh, frustrated and I, I'm not a virologist or any sort of medical profession, but by people sort of spreading conspiracy theories and fake news online, what is the danger in that, in, in people spreading, you know, those, those sort of fake conspiracy theories? Because I was reading things like, for example, um, there's people within the South Asian community in the UK that aren't uh, getting the vaccine because obviously the vaccine is um it's not compulsory you know it's voluntary you're not forced to get it but they don't want to get it because there's been false news spreading that it contains um pork you know which they can't eat due to religious uh, reasons things like that like that's just like one of you know thousands of conspiracy theories what are the dangers from you know people spreading these false stories that might seem initially harmless but then they end up reaching you know thousands of people online so the, the yeah, as you rightfully said, one of the things we need to encourage as many people to get the vaccine as possible. And the reason why we can do that is because we know, uh, or we have very high confidence that it, it's it's very safe and it's very effective. And you know, we need that protection as a community and personally over the next year. Um, most people um, are fine with that, and they, and they they weigh that up 
you know, at their risk, and most people will get the vaccine. And however, you know, it's not a, a at the minute it's not a you know, required vaccine, and so there's that op, op, there's that bit where people can get out of it, um, for whatever reason. So that's why conspiracy theories or these false ideas that come up, and that convince those people who maybe you're already a bit hesitant not to get it. It's kind of worrying because on a personal level that they might be at risk and then they're going to go into the hospital and they're going to get sick and they might die, particularly if they're older. Um, and also from a, a community level, because we're always going to have this burden of, of COVID-19 that can overwhelm and even just make a, a hassle for um, hospitals. So it's really important to um, conjure those things head on and, um, you know, most of the times it's people who are hesitant. There's always going to be people who are completely against it for whatever reason, and you can't do anything for those people. But there's a lot of people who are just hesitant, and we have to do the best we can to communicate to them and just answer their questions and talk to them, talk them through it. Because most of the cases, it is a conspiracy theory in that it is false news. Um, right? You know, some of the things um, on ethical grounds, you know, they are produced using animal products. They might not necessarily have animal products in them, but yes, they were produced using animal products. And some people might not like that and that that's fine. But, you know, I think we do have to, um, you know, just discuss their, their hesitancy because we want to con uh, convince as many people as possible um, to get the vaccine. From your personal perspective, have you ever received sort of, because I've seen quite a lot of people um, you know, doctors and, and people within the medical profession receiving quite a lot of like abuse sometimes on, on Twitter and just on online forums um, because they're trying to convince people, you know, to take the vaccine or, or even people, you know, in person in hospitals. Um, I understand tensions are high as well because obviously it's, it is unprecedented times and it's very stressful. Um, have you ever received, you know, any anything like that, you know, where you're just trying to trying to just convey information online and there are people sort of going against you in a way oh yeah yeah all, all the time that's uh, that's the beauty of social media and that there's always people who will disagree and there's particularly a, a very strong headed i wouldn't say militant but very um yeah very obvious run through twitter that people are like that um, and that they you'll not be able to convince them but they will actually then convince sort of other people who are more hesitant around them. And so, yeah, we do do that, but I think we just have to keep, keep at it and keep, um, you know, keep pushing the message and, you know, discussing it with people. Yeah. And there's, these are still early days and there's lots of information and it's hard to process, but we can sort of do our best to convince as many people to get the vaccine uh, as possible. Yeah. And then as well, sort of say it's, um, you know, for example, two years down the line and everyone has been vaccinated. Is it, and again, this might seem like a, a silly question, is it that eventually the the COVID-19 virus um, or, you know, it's different variants, is it expected that it will just eventually die out because, you know, that many people will um, have the vaccine or, you know, because we're in lockdown now that it, it just won't be able to be transmitted anymore so that if someone does have it, and then you know eventually they recover and they get better and they haven't transmitted it to anybody else. Is that is that the prediction or is it one of those things that it, it might always be around but it just won't be as bad because we will all have the vaccine? I guess that was kind of the hope and there's always a theoretical hope that if you just made everybody stay inside 
um, for a month or six weeks, then after that six weeks, there will be no more um, COVID because the virus always needs a new person to infect because every time it infects a person, uh, the immune response will get rid of that virus. So it always has to, to spread from person to person. If you stop them spreading, then the virus goes extinct. Um, that was always the hope. You can't do that. It's probably not ethically right to lock everybody in, a, in the world up for uh, six weeks. Um, it might have been easier at the very start of this when there was far less people infected, but that, that's gone now. And so, um, and we don't think our lockdowns are that good. Um, they can bring the, the R value down you know, but le le less than one, they can't control it. But again, it's not as extreme as what we would have, that would actually eliminate the virus. And then, so our vaccines aren't that good. They don't block that well um, the virus spreading. So you can still get infected, you can still pass it on. So really, you're just blocking the disease. The virus is probably, is probably going to be spreading um, quite well. Um, in the presence of a vaccine. And so um, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, is going to be with us for um, probably for, uh, for the foreseeable decades, centuries. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in 50 years, we'll be, you know, you'll be talking about COVID like we talk about the flu, or we might even just refer to it as the flu, mm -hmm. because there's lots of respiratory viruses, and we just call them... We, very in a bad bite of the flu and it could be any one of them really it's not necessarily the, the flu but we will be getting the vaccine it'll probably be updated every couple of years at least so you'll not really worry about it um, from that perspective because those at risk will be having the vaccine and just over the decades um, um, it'll get less of a, it'll become less of a burden uh, and the reason why we think that is because it will infect children and children don't really get sick from it but they do get a good immune response and so they'll be sort of naturally um, immune to it and as they get older then they'll be better able to, to handle um, the virus and like we have with the vaccine and so eventually COVID will turn into or we think the theory is it'll turn into one of these um, viruses that are still terribly bad and still kill a lot of people and still hurt a lot of people, but that can generally be controlled um, and that they kind of fade into um, the background of most people's um, thinking like they do with the flu. And that's not to minimize COVID and it's not to minimize flu. It's still really bad and you know, lots of public health professionals and virologists dedicate their lives to stopping these viruses. But you know, in most people, you'll not have the extreme you know, need to lock down and the extreme fear uh, that most people will have with these viruses. I think that that's the general theory, that it's not going away anytime soon. That's it for this week's episode of TechCrack. For all things tech and business in Northern Ireland, visit syncni.com. Have a good week.